Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. Our daily newsletter has no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. It's our readers who support Arab Digest, and we intend to keep it that way. To find out how you can support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, head to ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. In this world of information overload in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. With one article a day and the weekly podcast, we provide unique coverage of the Middle East and North Africa, featuring the very best experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. My guest today is Jim Crane. Jim is an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. He worked for many years as a journalist based in Iraq and Dubai, and is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press, and a favorite of mine, the classic Dubai, the story of the world's fastest city, published by Atlantic Books. Jim, great to have you back in the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Always fun to chat with you about the uh, issues of the day. Certainly is. Well, listen, I want to take you back to 2003, and, and I remember speaking to a former CIA agent, his, agent, uh, his name is Robert Baer, and he was pretty busy in the Middle East uh, back in those days. And, and I was asking him about U.S. foreign policy in, in the Middle East. He said, Bill, if you want to understand U.S. foreign policy, you just need two words, oil and Israel. We'll get to Israel and the Gaza conflict a little later on and, and, and its impact on the energy sector. But first of all, Jim, you've written a recent paper that argues that as the U.S. is further insulated from international oil market risk, the relationship with Saudi Arabia inevitably is shifting. Is that the case? Yeah, well, you know, it is the case. Yeah. I mean, if, if interesting uh, little quote from Bear. I mean, uh, uh, Robert Bear. he wasn't far off there. You know, I I was uh, I unearthed that in an interesting study from Harvard uh, that they gathered a whole bunch of uh, big thinkers in the year 2000 to rank U.S. national interests from highest to lowest, uh, and then they they did a separate one a list for the Middle East. And I for your uh, listeners here, I've jotted down the top three uh, from that list, all described as vital. Uh, first one is that Israel survives as a free state. Number two is that there be no major sustained curtailment in energy supplies to the world. And then number three is that no state in the region hostile to the United States acquires new or additional weapons of mass destruction. So, um, yeah, so things, of course, have evolved a bit since, uh, since that document was written in 2000. And even national interests that look rock solid, uh, you know, they can erode or sometimes make sudden shifts. Uh, so today, right now, you know, you and I are mainly concerned with the second item on that list, you know, the importance of energy supplies. You know, and for us here in the U.S., that generally means oil, right? We don't really worry that much about other energy supplies because they all have substitutes, 
you know, oil doesn't, at least not yet. Um, you know, and we also worry about oil uh, because, you know, here in the United States, you know, it's such an important transportation fuel, you know, and we drive a lot, but we do not control prices. Uh, you know, oil prices are set in a global marketplace that's heavily influenced by Saudi Arabia. So that has basically meant that we here in the United States have to stay close to the Saudis as long as we care about oil prices. Uh, and so, um, you know, this, this new paper I've, I've uh, written, it should be coming out in the journal Orbis uh, in their spring issue. In that paper, I argue that three long-term trends in the oil market right now are starting to undermine oil's strategic importance, at least for the U.S., uh, and, you know, in some cases, other OECD countries. And those trends, you know, if they, if they really uh, um, take hold, they could push the U.S. and Saudi Arabia further apart. Uh, so if you think about those national interests, you know, that second one might evolve a bit and maybe drop down the list uh, somewhat. Now, none of these trends is really likely to have a big dent in global oil demand overall. So they're, you know, they're not going to be the thing that saves us from climate change, uh, but, you know, could affect relations. Okay, well, let's give me a snapshot then of those three trends, because we are seeing some strains now in the Saudi-U.S. relationship, which, as you say, for decades was was rock solid and was built very much around oil. Uh, okay, so... Let's look at those 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 trends, Jim. Yeah. So so the first one is that uh, you know oil demand is kind of inexorably shifting away from the rich OECD countries and toward the developing world, right? So the OECD share used to be all the way up to about seventy five percent of global oil in the nineteen seventies. You know that's down in the forties now. I think it's under forty five percent. Uh, now in for for the for the rich world, you know, rich countries are also you know rich countries plus China are are also the places where oil substitutes for transportation are being developed, right? So that monopoly of oil as our you know almost a hundred percent transportation fuel, uh, you know, totally dominant, uh, is finally starting to weaken. Uh, you know, personal transport is also getting more efficient. We're seeing, you know, besides electric vehicles that don't use any oil, we're seeing more efficient hybrids, plug-in hybrids, a lot of e-bikes and other, you know, electric vehicle uh, options as well, you know, scooters, etc. cetera. Uh, and so, you know, the, 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 the developing world, the non-OECD, their demand um, is, is doing a good job of replacing, uh, you know, the flatlined or declining OECD oil demand, you know, and, and, you know, oil demand is still growing overall, but it's growing in the underdeveloped countries, right? And those countries don't have the same military capabilities as the developed world does, right? They can't offer that same oil for security bargain that, uh, you know, the Saudis and the UAE and the others in the Gulf get from, uh, from their, 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 their ties with the U.S., you know, those countries need oil, uh, but they don't have that same wherewithal to police the trade routes for, for their oil. You know, U.S., we're, we're spending more than $100 billion a year on this, and there's been some pretty consistent calls, you know, in, in Washington to, uh, to start reducing that commitment. 
you know, China has a base in Djibouti now. They may be able to do do this someday, but, you know, not not yet. So, so if the OECD governments see oil as less strategically important, you know, that could affect hard security provision for big exporters like the Saudis. Uh, the second uh, trend is that, you know, oil you know, is increasingly a feedstock for making petrochemicals, plastics, right? So, you know, that's about 12% of the oil market now. That's going up to 16%, according to the IEA, in, over, over the next couple of decades. Uh, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's really, that's where the growth is. The IEA has just said that just about all post-COVID growth in oil demand has been, been in petrochemicals, and mainly, most of that's been in China both of these trends playing out simultaneously here. And oil producers love this notion, hey, you know, petrochemicals and making plastics, this is like a, you know, they consider it like a climate compliant use for oil and gas because you're not really burning the oil and gas, you know, you're converting it into uh, to, to resins and polymers that become plastics. Plastics, of course, you know, you got a disposal issue here, but the carbon stays inside the, the product the emissions from that industry are, are from the, the process heat that's used to convert, uh, you know, that oil and gas into plastics. But plastics aren't as important to the global economy. They don't have that same cachet as oil, right? That, you know, as a fuel that powers your militaries, powers global trade. You know, we're not going to need the U.S. Navy watching over trade routes for, for petrochemical feedstocks, right? You know, the Pentagon's not going to spend $100 billion a year just to protect you know, resins and polymers, right? So just not as important. And then the third and last sort of most interesting trend here uh, is adoption of electric vehicles among U.S. voters and voters in other democracies, probably. You know, battery-powered cars don't burn oil, you know, and oil isn't really even used to make the electricity, uh, you know, that you use as a fuel here. So, you know, electric vehicles really insulate drivers from oil market geopolitics. So, you know, here in the U.S., presidential popularity has been pretty strongly negatively correlated with gasoline prices for a long time, right? I mean, when prices go up, the president takes a hit, right? That's right. Price of the pump, yeah. Yeah, so it's always a big issue here. And, you know, I've seen some research that shows that, you know, U.S. drivers that have long commutes will even change their votes based on fuel prices. If they're really upset about high fuel prices, they'll switch. So politicians in America are scared of gasoline prices at election time. Uh, And, you know, the more you get voters driving electric vehicles, that correlation is going to weaken. So, you know, high levels of electric vehicle penetration could give the U.S. president a freer hand in dealing with Saudi Arabia uh, you know, and other oil-producing countries, right? So, you know, we saw this deference towards Saudi Arabia, you know, by the Biden administration after calling them out in his campaign. He was pretty deferential around, uh, you know, the 2022 election. Wasn't he just, yeah, yeah, the the, the famous fist bump. And uh, we, we know what happened with that. Mohammed bin Salman said, okay, we can fist bump, but I'm not going to play your game anymore. Right. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe that, uh, you know, uh, that that starts to weaken uh, and, and maybe even go away. So something. To yeah, because you uh, you uh, have called 
the oil, uh, you know, it was a big factor, still is a big factor today, but you call that the glue holding the relationship firm. And I guess, you know, looking a little down the road, there are some pretty big implications here, aren't there, for Washington and Riyadh? There sure are, yeah. I mean, I totally agree, Bill. Um, you know, so there's been a lot of perturbations, right, that, you know, with, between the United States and Saudi Arabia over the years, you know, I mean, the... Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in, in, in 1991 was one of the anti-communism was really kind of the glue that held the relationship together. Uh, but, you know, back then, you know, we had the September 11th attacks uh, that caused some some friction, of course, uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq back in 2003 also. But, uh, you know, more recently, it's been Biden and MBS where the, a lot of the friction has been. And, you know, some of that probably also stems from Russia's entry into OPEC uh, back in 2016. Recent weeks, uh, you know, since the, you know, the, the Gaza war, U.S. and the Saudi are, uh, you know, we're working really closely uh, together uh, again. And the Saudis are proving this to be a pretty key player in these, you know, normalization talks and, you know, peace talks, et cetera. So if, if, if that happens, if we see a, you know, a, a normalization as part of that, um, you know, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia might institutionalize what's now more of an ad hoc oil for security arrangement. But if that doesn't happen, you know, relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia could drift even further. You know, the U.S. right now is still the biggest consumer of oil in the world. I mean, but we've got, you know, inefficient vehicles, long commutes. There's not a lot of alternate transportation op- options. U.S. voters have been demonstrating a willingness to pun- punish presidents for high prices. If that goes away, uh, what happens? You know, if the U.S. and Saudi Arabia engage in another spat, like in 2022, when Biden said there'd be consequences for the Saudis cutting oil production right at, right before the election, um, there were no consequences that time around. But if the U.S. drivers don't really care so much about gasoline prices in the future, the next time something like that happens, there might be some consequences. And then where are we? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you mentioned EVs, electric vehicles. And, um, you know, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I suppose there are those in, in the states who, who look at EVs with what a, a whiff of suspicion. Uh, would that be a fair way to uh, describe it? Yeah, so so I mean, EVs like everything else in the United States are getting political, right? And and you know, it this trend could actually bleed into U.S. domestic politics, and we could see a partisan split on relations with Saudi Arabia. You know, I mean, electric vehicles—it's uh, no secret here—they're trending to blue states. You know, that, that vote for the Democratic Party and. Democratic congressional districts. I mean, I've looked at maps of, of where electric vehicle chargers are, and they are mainly in urban areas uh, that, that tend to be held by Democratic representatives. And, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the rural Americans don't have access to chargers, don't buy many electric vehicles, and they tend to vote Republican. By, by your vehicle, you shall be known. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's all, you know, it's more than just a a, you know, mode of transportation here. It's a, it's a cultural symbol, you know, in the U.S. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you might see a Democratic president feeling more liberated from gasoline prices than a Republican, you know, who still has to deal with his base that's driving gasoline-powered vehicles, 
Republican president might want to be more friendly towards the Saudis, you know, and what happens if the Saudis decide, well, gosh, we better get more involved in U.S. elections, you know, like through lobbying or even cutting production again to hurt Democrats, right? You know, so that would probably help sell some EVs. But, you know, there's a lot of ways that this could go. Indeed. And we are in an election year. uh, And it looks like Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And of course, Biden is is running. You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law and Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. The Digest is a truly independent voice on the Middle East, North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day and a weekly podcast from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and look out for the offer of a free two-month trial to our reader-supported daily newsletter. Let me ask you about COP28, which was held in Abu Dhabi last November, chaired by the head of ADNOC. Now, ADNOC, and and you've made this point before uh, for us, Jim, it's shown a degree of determination in transitioning from oil. When you look at ADNOC and then Saudi Aramco, who comes out looking stronger in that race to transition? Yeah, I'm not sure it's really an honest-to-goodness race to transition here, but um, I would say uh, the UAE, definitely in the lead, you know, as far as being farther ahead. Uh, you know, they, you can sort of see this mapped out in their net zero goals. I mean, the UAE's got a 2050 net zero goals. Saudi's not till 2060. Both of these countries have absolutely massive carbon footprints. Uh, you know, they both earn incredible sums exporting oil, you know, enough to fund government budgets that have very lavish social programs and other spending. But both of them also have pretty simple pathways to net zero, right, as we've, we've discussed in the past. You know, the UAE is further along, though, in that, and they've got a few advantages. And that might be part of the reason that they wanted to host the COP and, you know, are more willing to discuss that agreement uh, that came out of the COP transitioning away from fossil fuels, you know, so... On the attribute side, I mean, they've all got, both these countries got a lot of sunlight. You know, the Saudis also have a decent wind resource. You know, they've got lots of vacant land around their cities. You know, their power sector could be decarbonized with renewables and then maybe a bit of backup power from gas in the short run and maybe batteries later. You know, that's 40% of their emissions. Both of these countries deeply want to reduce domestic oil demand and reserve it for export, right? So mm-hmm. EV adoption would help them with that. You know, both of these countries are working on carbon capture. It's, a, it's expensive and pretty inefficient, but they have great assets for that. They've got their emissions clusters. They've got perfect geology for storing carbon. They've got the knowledge. They've got cash. They've got the infrastructure. Uh, they're both committed to hydrogen both for domestic decarbonization and for exports. They're both autocracies that are pretty good at making long-term policy. But the UAE still comes out on top, right? So they're the richer country. They're way more diversified already. Their power sector is already uh, about 18% of their power uh, as of the end of last year was either renewable or nuclear, right? So zero carbon. 
you know, Saudis are now at about 4%, just under 4%. So they're, they're behind. That's a big difference. I mean, it's an interesting marker, isn't it? But is it also the case, Jim, that the Emiratis, because they're a small country, they can be a, just a, a lot more nimble. You look at Saudi Arabia, it's a big country, big population, bigger challenges. Vision 2030, this attempt to diversify the economy. I mean, it, you've got a very, very ambitious program that Mohammed bin Salman is, is pumping out. But I, I look at the UAE uh, and I see uh, some pretty nimble and adept footwork, uh, but in big part because they don't have the same sort of challenges the Saudis have. That's exactly right. Yeah. So they, you know, the Saudis have a huge, uh, you know, population of citizens, right, who aren't going anywhere. <laughs> the UAE citizen population is pretty small. You know, ten percent of its its overall population. So, you know, the uh, you know the expats there kind of cycle through, um, and so it's um, you know it gives them a lot more uh, policy options that the Saudis don't have. Besides having just a smaller problem, smaller to begin with. So. Um, UAE, though, I mean, they have a lot more credibility also, which is important uh, in reaching these goals. You know, they've they've they made some pronouncements back in 2008, 2009 about reaching, you know, 7 percent of their generation capacity from renewables by 2020. And they actually got there in full on time. Uh, Mm. Saudi Arabia has not reached any of their clean energy goals at all, they made some some also similar pronouncements around the same time, and never came anywhere close. So they've got this kind of propensity to make big announcements and then later ignore them. So uh, yeah, and also MBS uh, has a propensity for giga projects uh, of uh, somewhat dubious merit. I'm thinking of uh, the line and uh, that whole Neom, uh, the Red Sea, ultra luxury tourist resort, all these sorts of programs that. Uh, the Emiratis uh, don't seem to be <laughs> going to saddle themselves with. But look, uh, the post-oil future, Jim, put you on the spot a little bit here, but uh, can you put a date on that and and when it becomes a reality? And, and what will it look like to these Gulf energy producing states when the post-oil future becomes the present for them? I don't know. It's hard to imagine a post-oil future for me. I mean, you know, especially when you think about plastics demand and how important oil is to that. I mean, you know, so but um, peak oil demand could, you know, we could see that as soon as 2030. Right. But that still leaves us, you know, the world consuming more than 100 million barrels a day. You know, when you when oil demand finally plateaus, that is still a lot of oil and a lot of emissions. You know, everything that I read suggests that the Gulf producers are the they're going to be the last producers standing because their oil is in such big, easy to produce reservoirs that are, that cost the least. So they can take as much global market share as they want. They haven't done that because they want to keep prices high. But, you know, as we start to see the oil market declining, you know, over time, they may change tactics and go for a larger market share. So I'd say there's three big variables to watch. You know, one is, you know, that trend up in the uh, non-OECD, right? You know, you six billion people and growing outside the OECD that are getting wealthier. And typically that means you use more oil. The second one is that big 
consuming countries, you know, governments change in those countries, you know, and, and, you know, let's see what they do, you know, from a policy perspective. It's, it's really hard to forecast policy changes in governments. You know, if they address demand, that could have a big dent on, on, on the oil market. And the third one is OPEC, right? So, you know, is OPEC going to keep managing the oil market to, you know, even when the market starts to decline, then if they do that, prices will probably stay higher and we'll see more of the higher cost producers staying in the market. They don't. If OPEC collapses, you know, we're going to see the Gulf probably even more dominant in, in oil. Yeah. Okay. I'm just thinking of Trump too and his sort of drill, drill, drill scenario. Um, it's hard to imagine America not continuing to pump oil, but uh, you're suggesting that it will be the Gulf states. And for very good reason, as you say, it's just so much cheaper than to get the oil out of the ground. But let me ask you, and I want to go back now to COP28 and uh, some of the uh, decisions that emerged from that, because these Gulf oil producing states, they need to manage the transition, particularly given that the Middle East is on the front lines of climate change. And you've described this situation as a lose-lose or even lose-lose-lose situation. Uh, Doesn't sound good, Jim. No, I mean, it's a major issue. Climate Risk is is uh, is really crucial in that part of the world. I mean, you've got those crazy temperatures you're seeing. I mean, this last summer was just so brutal in the region, just just heinously hot. They've set temperature records in the Gulf. You know, Kuwait and Iraq, almost 130 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, 54 Celsius. You know, that just means it's going to see to to, to uh, take huge amounts of energy to stay livable. And when you have a heat wave like that, you know, your power supply is basically your life support. You know, you need unbroken electricity. Even when demand is spiking to the highest levels, that power's got to stay on or people are going to die. So backup generation is going to be critical. You're going to probably need emergency cooling centers. But you don't see a ton of concern in the region about this yet. I mean, when I talk to people, they're still climate is a threat to their livelihoods and they're not so concerned with the physical aspects yet. Mm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you mentioned the heat, there's the, the, the dust storms, uh, there's drought, there's sudden uh, massive rain uh, falls uh, situation in Libya, situation in, in Yemen, we get this massive flooding and thousands of people being, uh, being, being swept away. It's a pretty grim, yeah. grim situation, and, and and it's interesting that um, you say that people aren't really embracing it and realizing just how fundamental it all is. But I, I, I've held perhaps the toughest question to the last, Jim, which is the, the war in Gaza. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, we're hearing now that uh, a shift in America, the United States policy, perhaps shifting somewhat a wave of unconditional support for Israel. Uh, we're seeing some signs here in the UK. Uh, certainly the opposition party has decided now finally to uh, call for an immediate ceasefire. All of these things suggesting that perhaps we may be moving to uh, some sort of a resolution to this horrible conflict. But in terms of the energy market, um, what kind of impact is it having uh, in, in the immediate, in the short, in the long term? I mean, I... I as, as you do, I'm sure you look at the energy prices and they seem to have stayed pretty stable so far. So should we assume that that will just remain the case? 
Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would agree with your, you know, your, your first statement that uh, energy is really probably the least of our worries in the Gaza war, right? I mean, you've got so many innocents being killed and maimed in this that, um, you know, uh, that, of course, uh, you know, getting to a ceasefire should be our first concern here. But given that we're talking about it, uh, you know, energy markets, yes, they are being, uh, you know, jostled, at least, I guess you could say here. I mean, and these days, most of that is via the Houthi in Yemen and their attacks on Red Sea shipping, and they've basically come out and said repeatedly that they're going to keep doing that until there's a ceasefire, you know, Israeli ceasefire in Gaza and humanitarian support for uh, Palestinians. So it, you know, that all, it all goes back to, uh, uh, to the Israel-Palestine, uh, Palestinian conflict. So um, the pressure that the Houthi are putting on global shipping seems to be disproportionately falling on the European Union, uh, on, you know, on Europe and, you know, elsewhere as well. But really the EU seems to be feeling it the most, you know, through shipping costs, through delays, uh, you know, some commodity price increases. You know, the Red Sea, you know, there's two, two choke points at either end. There's the Suez Canal in the north and the Bab el Mandeb Strait in the south. Um, you know, it's about 12% of global sea trade, um, but it's really more important for container shipping than it is for, for energy. Just, you know, about 8% of global crude oil goes through the, the Suez Canal. So container ships and car carriers, that, that kind of traffic is down more than 90% uh, through the Bab el-Mandeb, uh, you know, at, at where, where, where Yemen uh, is at the mouth of the uh, Red Sea. And fuel tanker day rates are way up. You know, they've tripled up to about $75,000 a day. Container shipping from Shanghai to Genoa and Italy, you know, that those costs have also, you know, tripled or quadrupled. And those are costs are being passed on to European consumers as inflation, right? So you might think of this as Houthi economic sanctions, indirect pressure, on European consumers to start getting behind a ceasefire. Um, you know, that's the way I, I, I might imagine this. You know, and the, probably the most affected cargo is LNG, liquefied natural gas, a lot of which flows from Qatar to, uh, to Europe. We have seen zero transits by LNG carriers through the Red Sea since January 17th. So that's adding an extra, you know, three weeks onto the uh, round trip uh, from from Qatar to to Northern Europe. Uh, you know, Kepler uh, put out a report on shipping showing a 75 percent decline in LNG transits through the Red Sea since November. You know, basically because nobody wants to ride on a ship that's packed with natural gas when there's missiles flying around, right? Yeah. Certainly nobody's going to yeah. insure anything like that. Yeah, so. the insurance costs alone, yeah, yeah, would be staggering, I'm sure. Well, yeah. you know, if uh, if that helps to focus folks' minds in Europe uh, and, and drive this momentum towards a ceasefire, then um, let us hope that that, that, that does be uh, proved to be the case, uh, because certainly that that is what is urgently needed. Yeah, I mean, so the Houthi is suggesting that all this is going to go away as soon as there's a ceasefire in place. So, I mean, well, that remains to be seen, but, you know, it's a reason to be hopeful that, that we get there. Mm. Well, okay, Jim, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you as ever. Well, thank you, Bill. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always good to chat.
You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast. My guest today was Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. You'll notice that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. If you'd like to support our independent voice, head to our website at ArabDigest.org, where you can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Jim. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. I'm William Law, editor of the Herb Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources.